Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. I've heard people say that the most important thing about producing a podcast is to have it come out on a regular schedule, whether that's weekly or monthly or whatever. Well, we have not managed that in the last couple of years for all kinds of reasons, I'm sure, as you can imagine. Um, But I'm very excited to be bringing you our first new episode in over a year, which is an interview I did ages ago with Dr. Savine Mathadu, a professor of metallurgical and materials engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. My favorite thing about talking with Dr. Mathadu is that he is so good at making connections between real-life material science and pop culture in a way that is super fun and accessible, and it always makes me excited to go learn more about metallurgy and chemistry and blacksmithing. Um, So whether you're a fan of Star Wars or Marvel or Lord of the Rings or none of those, uh, get ready to enjoy the infectious enthusiasm of geeking out about metallurgy and materials engineering. So without further ado, here is our interview. I'm really excited um, to introduce our guest, Suveen Mathadu. Uh, and Suveen has actually been on the podcast once before, way back in our first season. Um, we spoke at the USA Science and Engineering Festival about nano superheroes. And so I'm especially excited that we can talk to you for a whole episode all about your own work this time. So do you want to start briefly, just tell us a little bit about what you, you know, your, your role now, but then also kind of how you first got interested in science? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Miriam. I'm Savine Mathadu. I'm a professor, and I'm also a chief scientist in the Energy and Environment Directorate at the Pacific Northwest National Lab in, in Washington. And in both of those jobs, I study processing of metals to make them stronger, lighter, tougher, more bioresorbable, more bactericidal or virucidal basically taking metals and converting them in in ways and processing them in ways that they can go into applications where they uh, allow for beneficial changes. So what got me interested in science? That was the second part of your question. It started out with my dad being a mechanical engineer and me seeing that example from him. Uh, He studied heating, ventilating, air conditioning, fire protection, plumbing, And I ended up going down the path of material science, specifically metallurgy. I I study metallurgy. So, yeah, seeing my dad, seeing that representation of a scientist and engineer is what got me down this pathway. What got you interested in metallurgy in particular? Part of it was that metallurgy was a part of my coursework and study that didn't really require a lot of math. I found I found as I studied and continued to go in my academic or school pathway, I was not really good at the mathematics of things. I was better in hands-on, memory-based kind of understanding. And so I kind of veered towards metallurgy, but I also grew up, grew up liking swords and sword making and the idea of cool metals and things like the superhero stories that I would read. Iron Man and Captain America Shield, Thor's Hammer, those kind of things. So it all it all geeked me out in a way that that kind of said, okay, if I can do this for a career, let's go that way. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask one technical term that you mentioned was bioresorbable. Can you say a little bit more about what that means? Yeah. So basically, it it means that over a period of time, the the metal as it's in your body 
will dissolve. It'll go away as the bone or tissue comes back into the place of where it was. So think about, oftentimes you hear about people having bones or screws or fixtures in their body uh, and they stay in the body for a long time. Our newer metals are made to dissolve at the same rate that the bone grows back into the body and eventually the metal is gone. You basically pee it out over a few months and then you regrow your bone uh, into those spaces. That's really cool. I was not aware of that. Um, so can you, you have tons of different research I know that you're working on and you just mentioned a little fraction of it, but for our podcast, can you talk a little bit about, little bit about what that has to do with nanotechnology? Absolutely. So uh, in most metallic materials, they're made up of crystals. Crystals are arrangements of, of atoms in a periodic array. And these crystals can be anywhere from millimeter, micrometer, all the way up to large inch size or um, centimeter size crystals. If you ever go and look at an aluminum light post, you can see the crystals on the side of, of the light post. The strength of a material is controlled in one way by the size of those crystals. So when those crystals get down to a size of less than 100 nanometers, the nanometer range, they become very, very, very strong and sometimes tough. Uh, so we can improve the properties of any of these metals tremendously by refining the grain structure to the nanoscale. And when we do that, they become stronger, uh, but we also can use less of the material and structural applications, which is uh, lowers cost and it also lowers the density or the weight. So if we say put some of these nanocrystal materials in vehicles, we can lower the overall weight of the vehicle and improve the, the fuel efficiency of the vehicle. And then in the prior case of the example that I, I discussed, the bioresorbable materials, as the metal breaks off, oftentimes when it degrades or corrodes, it breaks off along those crystal boundaries. So if you have large crystals that make up a grain and one of those crystals breaks off during the degradation, the intentional degradation, it's at risk of causing an embolism if it's anywhere greater than the size of about two micrometers, about 2000 nanometers. So if we can make the crystals small enough that when the material dissolves, it'll dissolve off into small nanoparticles we take away that risk of, of embolism. So recently stents, heart stents that were made out of a number of metallic materials were pulled off the market in the EU and the US because of the embolism risk caused by these large particles getting breaking off of the stent, uh, getting trapped in the body and, and causing death in some cases. So just the crystal size alone is enough to keep the body safe as the, the, the bioimplant dissolves. Cool. I noticed um, looking at your website, there's references to ultra fine grained material. Is that similar to nano? Is it a different scale? Can you explain what that means? Yeah, ultra fine grain is, is kind of a made up term by the, by the community. <laughs> it, it implies a range that's slightly above what the typical nanotechnology community would refer to nanoscale, which is 100 nanometers and below. 
in the metals processing community, ultrafine grain is a range from about 100 nanometers up to 1,000 micrometers, which is equal to one micrometer. And within that range, you still see a lot of beneficial strength properties and property improvements, but it's not technically what would be defined as the nanoscale. So we have assigned it a different name of ultrafine grain. Cool. So I want to go back to, you mentioned sword making, which seems like a very cool interest. Um, I like when I picture that, I picture a blacksmith with a forge and like whacking away at the hot metal. Um, can you kind of draw the connection between that and, and modern material science that you deal with all the time? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one in the same in many ways because whole periods of our history have been defined by advances in our ability to make swords or shields or, or tools. We went from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age when someone could figure out how to make a bronze sword and a bronze shield. And then we went from there to the Iron Age where we had iron or steel materials that were used to make modern tools and swords and shields. And that steel technology kind of advanced to now. When you say that you think of a blacksmith, these blacksmiths were doing things that basically I do in my lab, but that are informed by science and they were informed by art. People won't necessarily hear it since it's a podcast, but here we have the armorer from The Mandalorian. If you watch The Mandalorian, I kind of think of her as a metallurgist and a material scientist. She's, Can I take a little she's the one, Of course. That's perfect. She's she's the one. Wait, I missed it. Sorry, hold her up oh, again. <laughs> she's back. Thank you. She's the one. She's the one who takes that Beskar and is able to forge and convert it and process it in a way that makes the Mandalorian's armor and the tools and his production. And it's one of the most valuable things as it's always been. And if we could walk downstairs, you could see that I'm busy building a bla the blacksmith's house new Lego set that came out with Legos, where they even have a little button that you can push that lights a brick that makes it look like the coals are heating up underneath the swords. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit, get a little bit more into the the chemistry of what are what's a blacksmith doing when they are pounding on that metal? What, what does that do to make the material stronger? So the swords and buildings and cars and many other things these days, implants, as we talked about, are made out of steel. And steel fundamentally has two elements where modern steels have many other things thrown in, but initially steel had two elements, iron, which is very soft and ductile, and carbon, a small amount of ash or coal, or and the sword makers would often say it was the bones of their ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, so the iron is made up of atoms that are arranged in a periodic array or a lattice, almost like repeating cages in all directions. And when you deform the material or you're shaping it, the ductility is driven by how easily those atoms can move around, break bonds and rearrange. If you've heard the term thermal expansion, you know that a metal can get bigger or smaller depending on whether it's hot or cold. And when you heat up the metal in the forge, what you're doing is you're expanding the cages. You're making them bigger. 
eventually you get it big enough where the carbon, which is a much bigger atom than the iron, can fit inside the lattice of the iron. And oftentimes that takes force. You have to squeeze it in. And so when you have the, the uh, blacksmith pounding on that metal, he's forcing the carbon into the expanded cages of the lattice. Then oftentimes you see the sword maker taking the sword and plunging it into water to quench it. What that does is it causes the lattice to contract. And now what you've done is you've squeezed those carbon atoms at the nanoscale into these cages and they stress the area around where that carbon sits. And that tremendously improves the strength and the toughness of the material. It converts it from soft iron into strong, tough steel. Just a small amount, oftentimes 0.14% of the total composition is made out of carbon, but that's, that's enough to, to turn it into steel. Um, oftentimes at schools, I take two vials. I take a vial of iron powder and a vial of carbon powder, and I say it takes this much carbon to turn it into steel and the students say there's hardly anything there there's just a little bit at the bottom i said yeah that's all that's all you need thanks yeah that that makes sense so i love that you have already you know referenced the mandalorian as uh, an example of um the kind of topics we're talking about and i know that a lot of the outreach that your group works on to explain science to non-scientists revolves around superheroes and I admit, you know, when I think of Star Wars or comic books, it doesn't strike me as something they don't, it's not like what quote unquote hard science fiction where they're trying to be super scientifically accurate. But so for you, what makes those stories so great for, for doing outreach about science? So more than anything, it's the connectivity, um, specifically with superhero stories. There's multiple generations that connect to it from the ones who actually spent their literal pennies on the comics that are now in their 80s uh, or 90s to young kids who watch the movies and the cartoons and the, and the TV shows. So characters like uh, the Man of Steel, bringing it back to metallurgy, Superman, they're ubiquitous across generations. Also fairly ubiquitous across countries and cultures. You can go almost anywhere on the planet and someone will know who Batman or Superman is or Iron Man these days, uh, and then genders and, and different groups, um, they're all accessible. And part of it is because these, these comic books have always mirrored society. They've been modern mythologies. Uh, the stories of Zeus and Hercules, they always resonated with people because of the connection back to the broader human society and who we are as people. And Superhero stories do the same thing, but more generally, anything that you're passionate about, if you connect it to the science or the work that you're doing, it'll get kids excited about it. It'll get the community excited about it because it reaches, it reaches out to them. People like listening to somebody when they're talking about something that they're really interested in, which is why most teachers are horrible. Because they're not passionate about what they're talking about. No, they're not. They're not. They're they sometimes they're just forced to teach the class. And uh and it's a box that they have to check. They want to go back to their grants and research. But 
students like when a teacher is passionate and interested in what they're teaching. It, it is uh, infectious. That's the wrong term to word these days. It's really <laughs> exciting. It's very yeah. exciting. I think there's a myth too that um, science, because because the scientific method is is rigorous and designed to um, designed to reduce bias and and you know emotional impacts on your results. I think that gets conflated with the idea that you can't be excited about your work. You can't be emotional about the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that ties in with the idea of being um, sharing that excitement with the public is somehow quote unquote, not serious. You oh yeah, I, mean? I, I, I totally agree with you. That's, that's in many ways, the structure of academia. You know, there's this perception of rigor, but to be honest, there's also a perception that science only belongs to the elite thinkers and in that you should not bring it down to a level that somebody can, can necessarily understand it. I, I don't like that structure in academia. I don't like this perception that you have to rise to the top to be able to uh, be part of a scientific community and it shouldn't be brought down to you. Yeah, I think there's that, um, well, you were mentioning each each kind of sub area has their own terminology and that's useful because, it, you know, it's shared concepts or whatever, but that doesn't mean that people who don't happen to have that particular terminology to hand, it doesn't mean that they can't understand the concepts. It's just that they, that's not their area of expertise or whatever. So do you, bring it back to Nano again, do you have any favorite superheroes or other fictional characters that you like to use when you're talking about nanoscale or nanotechnology? Well, with nanotechnology, I, I and the, the ideas of scale, I often use Ant-Man. So Ant-Man has occupied a variety of different length scales just by his, the nature of him being able to become really small or really big. And so that's kind of a single source way of accessing uh, how to show students the science of scale. And there's a lot of great infographics out there that show the, the science of scale in, in different ways. One of the recent ones I saw was the scale of scientific monsters. So they have like Godzilla and King Kong and then going all the way up to Cthulhu and, and other directions. So... Yeah, Ant-Man is, is, a, is a great tool. Uh, with, for the material science stuff, I, I still go back to Black Panther, who I've liked since I was a kid, because partly because of the metallurgy and the science of vibranium and how vibranium things connected across the whole Marvel universe in the comics I read. But the other aspect was that King T'Challa was a non-stereotypical character. And I grew up reading comic books that had characters, if that if they were characters of color or from other cultures, they were portrayed in very stereotypical ways. Luke Cage, Shang-Chi, others. And King T'Challa was never portrayed as kind of the, the guy from the hood. He was a proud king scientist researcher who knew how to work with this metal and use it to technologically advance his society in, in Wakanda. And kind of what I would hope to do now but I don't want to be a king there shouldn't be any king these days yeah thanks um 
do you uh, you mentioned the kind of benefits of bringing your passion to both teaching and, and outreach. Are there other um, other areas of passion that you like to to draw on for your work? Oh yeah, I I mean I grew up listening to hip hop music. I grew up in Southern California, and I I mean a lot of that music I can't necessarily talk about here, uh, but. What I can what I can say is that I even use that passion in my classroom and educational outreach activities. So when I talk about material science, I can talk about the bling and diamonds. I can talk about how Eminem was portrayed to be working in a in a factory doing metals forming of vehicle parts for cars. I can talk about the alloys that go into to rims. I can talk about Kevlar vests if we want to talk about that aspect of of hip hop um, and, and using those examples and many others allows me to connect with the students. And even if they don't like hip hop music, it at least is something different than a series of uh, equations or bullet points on a slide. One of my favorite examples is a lead zirconium titanate vibrating uh, oscillating device for generating energy that could be used to store energy in an internal battery from an external source. So for say example, a pacemaker, by exposing it to hip hop music, that bass frequency could cause this thing to oscillate inside the body and generate energy that would be used to power the device. It, it brings a smile to my face to think of octogenarians having to, to listen to Kendrick Lamar or Biggie to be able to power their pacemakers. <laughs> that's great you have to dance because you have this pacemaker that's right <laughs> that's great well we're we're running a little short on time but i wanted to um to say you know here we are in in march 2021 and uh it may be a little bit later by the time this podcast actually comes out but the reality of everyone's life right now is COVID-19 pandemic. And so um, how has that affected your, your research, your group, your, I guess, life in general? Uh, it's obviously not been a normal time for anybody. I'm happy to say that my family and my students and, and team all made it through without catching COVID by being safe and keeping distances, at least physically. All of us are double vaccinated now, which is a, a big relief. During the pandemic, it was it was challenging. There was definitely issues of mental health, lack of productivity, lack of motivation, all of those things that would be expected. But I kind of made it clear to my group that that through this we would take care of our mental health first and foremost, and, and take care of each other. And luckily my sponsors didn't have any ex expectations of getting things done in a tough time and the same kind of time frames. But I also conveyed that to my students. So I didn't want any additional pressures on them. But one thing, one thing that we were able to start working on, which we were pretty excited about was we, we've been building on some discoveries that show that nanocrystalline metals, specifically copper and silver have uh, higher virucidal and bactericidal properties than coarse grained or large grained, as I was talking about at the beginning, sometimes two or three orders of magnitude. 
So we've started down an interesting path with some bioengineers and then also people doing simulations to try to understand the mechanisms of the nanocrystalline grains that specifically cause viruses like COVID and, and bacteria to die so quickly when they're touching that surface versus a conventional metallic surface. So that hasn't turned into any sort of papers yet, but it was an exciting way to think about how we could push back against future incursions by these viruses and other threats when they come around. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it actually has, you know, pretty strong relationship with some of the work of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which, you know, the researchers in our group are are interested in some of those similar um, kind of what happens when nanoparticles interact with biological systems. And I know viruses may or may not be considered biological systems, but um, but yeah, that that scale brings such interesting, interesting and different interactions than when it's bigger, when the materials are bigger. So that's really yeah, cool. absolutely. Very exciting. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any any parting words about uh, nanotechnology or material science before we say goodbye? Well, I, I thank you for having me on again. This was a lot of fun. I agree with Feynman about there being plenty of room at the bottom, meaning that there's still a lot to be explored in the broad field of, of nanotechnology, even though it's becoming a word that is more and more and more in the public eye, uh, I see increased opportunities for us to figure out the massive societal benefits that can be harnessed by understanding phenomena at those length scales. So uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. And yeah, thanks again for having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope we can do another episode sometime in the future. I'd be happy to, that'd be great. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to Professor Mathadu for taking the time to talk with me and for his incredible patience in waiting so long for us to get this episode out. Special thanks also go to our new podcast editor, Jack Rayhill, who is a student here at the University of Minnesota and gets pretty much all the credit for our episodes getting published this year. This podcast is produced by the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which is funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation. Our usual disclaimer, of course, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. If you followed Sustainable Nano before this, first of all, thank you, uh, and sorry for the wait. If you're discovering this podcast for the first time, you're in for a treat. I hope you'll go back and listen to our first 40 episodes, and I promise we will have more coming. But for now, you can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcast or Stitcher. We're also on the National Science Foundation Science Zone Radio, which is an amazing compilation of science radio shows and podcasts. And you can listen to any of our episodes and find our show notes with images and links at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. And if that's not enough, we also have a blog with hundreds of posts, most of them written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. And you can find that at sustainable-nano.com. Finally, you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, and we're Sustainable Nano, all one word, on those platforms. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening to the Sustainable Nano podcast. And remember, little things can make a big difference. <laughs>